But with that being said, uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. If we can all stand up together for the reading of God's word, we'll get going. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this account. And God, I just pray as we dig into this for just a few moments that you would reveal to us what you're trying to get at in this. There are passages in the Bible that are confusing. And Lord, I just pray that uh, today that you would bring clarity to that. I pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves um, not trying to make the word uh, say what we want to say, but rather we make it say what you want to say. And that we be humble enough to submit ourselves to it. That we better love you and be molded into the image of your son. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. Well, we've got a doozy of a passage today. Uh, how many of you have read this passage before? Yeah, or at least have heard it before, right? So you got Abraham uh, and Isaac. God calls on Abraham and says, hey, take your son up a mountain and go sacrifice him. Can we all just clear the air and say and admit this is kind of a, a hard one to swallow? Can, can we all admit that? Um, spoiler alert, if you haven't read ahead, Isaac doesn't get sacrificed. And so if you're sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for that to happen, I don't know why you would want to wait on that to happen, but if you're sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for that to happen, it doesn't. Uh, before uh, Abraham, or sorry, Isaac gets sacrificed, God says stop and he provides a ram to take his place. But even though we know that God is going to provide an alternate sacrifice other than Isaac, that still doesn't, for some of us, that doesn't take the edge off quite enough. Like we still look at this passage and we're still confused and we're still horrified at the thought that God is calling on someone to sacrifice their son. In fact, when I was in high school, uh, I remember talking to a friend of mine and uh, we were talking about Christianity and he was uh, agnostic, uh, which means basically he, he was willing to admit that there may be a God out there or a higher being out there. However, he did not know what that being was. So he kind of landed in the maybe, maybe not, not sure. Uh, and I remember I was talking to him about Christianity one day and he said that he could wrap his mind around Christianity and could wrap his mind around God. But the one thing that was hanging him up was this very passage. He said, I, I just can't believe in a God that would call on someone to sacrifice their own son. And you may be in that same position. Like, you may be a Christian, you may be agnostic, you may be an atheist, but you may be sitting here today and, and you're just confused by this passage and you just cannot wrap your mind around it. And my hope today, that after we look through this passage, that you would leave here today not thinking that God is this horrific God who would call on a follower to sacrifice a son, but you would leave here thinking that uh, God 
is a wonderful God who loves us and deeply cares for us and who would not call us to sacrifice our sons, but that he himself would sacrifice everything he has for our good. That's my hope that we'll get through today. Uh, but before we get into all that, what I really want to um, zone in on is Abraham. Because there's two sides of the story, right? There's, there's what is God doing through the story and there's what is Abraham doing through the story. And on Abraham's side, man, we see, we see a, an amazing faith on Abraham's side. Like you have to have a tremendous faith for when God calls you to sacrifice your son, you just step to it. Like can, how many of you would have stepped to it? My hand's not up with you. I'm just holding my hand up as an example. I'm, I'm with you there. Like, like I would struggle with this, but we're going to see that Abraham has an amazing faith to respond to God in this. And what I want to do is as we look through this passage, pull out characteristics of faith that Abraham has and kind of compare them to our own. But before we even get into that, we need to figure out what faith even is, right? So faith, we, it's not primarily a Christian word. It's, it's just a word uh, in our language, but we use it a lot in Christianity. And sometimes there's kind of like spiritual baggage thrown onto the word faith to the point that we have a hard time even defining it. So I could give you a bunch of Christianese definitions on uh, how to define faith, but uh, I'm just going to give you a really simple definition. Faith is this. Faith is simply put, trusting God. Faith is trusting God. And so whenever you say that you place your faith in something, what you're saying is, is that I trust this thing that it has the ability to do what I'm hoping it to do whenever I give myself to it. So like, for example, I'm, I'm gonna, this is how I used to explain it to the students all the time. If I can get this chair out. There we go. So I used to explain this way with a chair. So we got this chair right here, right? If I was to place my faith in this chair, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that I trust this chair, that it has the ability to hold me up and sustain me whenever I sit down in it. Does that make sense? Or are you tracking with me on that, on how it goes? Okay, we're gonna come back to that in just a second. So faith is simply trusting in God. And this is why uh, whenever Jesus was on the boat with the disciples and the storms came, and the, the uh, disciples started to freak out and Jesus was taking a nap, which by the way, I, I applaud Jesus on taking naps. So uh, they were freaking out that they were gonna die and Jesus wakes up and he says to them, y'all remember what he says? He says, Why are you, or what do you have to fear? You have little faith. And so for Jesus, he was saying, y'all's lack of trust and for me to provide for you is equating in a lack of faith in that. So there's a flip side to it. When you trust God, you have faith. When you don't trust God, you don't have faith. And so when we have the, the trust in God as the fundamental aspect of our faith, what's gonna blossom out of that are characteristics. And that's what I wanna land on today as we talk about Abraham's faith. I wanna dig into his faith and I want to pull out of it three characteristics and the goal in pulling out these three characteristics is to hold those characteristics up to our own faith, not to beat ourselves up, not to make ourselves feel bad, but to say, if we want a faith like Abraham's, like what does that look like? How can we better strengthen our faith so that we might get to a point that we'll be like Abraham and we can respond? Now a disclaimer here, if God is calling you to sacrifice your son tonight, 
don't do it. <laughs> I need to throw that disclaimer just for a liability reason. Um, this is a one time only in the Bible the kind of thing happened, and we're going to get into why later. Uh, but uh, God explicitly uh, goes against um, sacrificing your own children. Again, there's a reason why it's happening here that we're going to get into later. But what I want to do is figure out how we can better strengthen our faith to be more like Abraham's. So, Three characteristics of faith. Let's go ahead and get into it. So open back up to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. We're going to pick up in our passage. It says this, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I love it when the Bible throws an exclamation point at the end of the thing. Like I, I can just imagine Abraham's in his sleep and just out of nowhere, God's like, Abraham. So now they have that in your mind. Abraham, and he says, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men. Now, just for clarification there, some of your uh, translations probably put servants in right there. When, so, so when it says young men, it's not saying his young men in terms of like sons, it's more uh, servants. Okay. So he took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. So God calls Abraham. And again, I, if it was my interpretation, I think that this happened in the middle of the night. I think that's why God's yelling at him to wake him up. And so uh, he calls out to Abraham and tells him to go sacrifice his son. And what, is, what does Abraham do with that? He, the next morning, like early in the morning, first thing in the morning, he's up chopping firewood, getting ready to go. And that's what Abraham's faith is. He has such a trust in God that when God calls him to do something, he doesn't wait, he doesn't deliberate, he responds, he moves. And that's going to lead us to our uh, first characteristic of faith, is that faith leads to action. Faith leads to action. And faith has to lead to action, like it's, it's built into its very nature in that. Again, like faith is simply trusting in God. And when you trust in something, what that's going to do is that's going to lead to actions that back up that trust, right? So like what's going on on the inside is eventually going to work its way to the outside. Make sense? Make sense? Okay. Uh, Jesus says this in Luke 6.45. He says, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up his heart, in his heart. For his, his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart, right? So what Jesus is getting at here is, for better or worse, what's going on in here is going to overflow out here. What's boiling in here, like have y'all ever like cooked noodles and like you left the water boiling in and it started overflowing? And then makes a giant mess. Take that picture. You're boiling noodles in here, and it's going to boil over into out here. So whatever's going on comes out here and out. Okay, so that means that if you, and this is like a, a good litmus test for you. So like, if you ever wonder what's going on in your heart, just look at your actions, right? So if you're a person that constantly just fumes over people and anger and bitterness just spews out on people, it's a good indication that in your heart is a lot of anger and bitterness, right? 
If you're a person who's constantly condescending the people around you and putting down the people around you, it's a good indication that in your heart is arrogance and pride. If you're a person who is constant, it's not all bad. If you're a good a person who's constantly complimenting people and being kind to people, that's a good indication that in your heart is love and compassion for people. What's going on the inside will overflow to the outside, right? And this is the same with faith. If you have an abundance of trust and faith in your heart for God, what's going to come out? Actions that back that up. Right? Now, you may stop me here, and you may say, Chris, I'm saved by grace through faith. I don't have to do anything. Right? Like, like I, if I'm not doing anything over here, that doesn't negate my faith because we're saved by grace through faith. Well, let's, let's talk about that for a second. I'm going to walk on eggshells for a second. Let's come back to uh, the chair. So we got this chair right here, and we've placed our faith in this chair, saying, I trust that this chair has the ability to hold me up and to support me if I was to sit down in it. Now someone comes up to you and says, hey, Chris, I'm glad that you have trust in that chair. Why don't you take a seat? I don't know. You know, you know I, I trust it. I don't, I don't got to demonstrate my trust to you. I don't need to sit down. A few weeks come by, someone else comes up. And it's like, hey, I see that you don't really sit down in your chair that much. You say that you trust it. Can you go ahead and sit down? It's like, I'm going to leave that to someone else. I'm going to leave the sitting to other people. I've got enough faith that I don't even need to sit down. Like, I, I trust it. Like, and this goes on and on. And if you have someone who is refusing to sit down in this chair after claiming that they trust in this chair over and over again, at what point do you start to question whether they have trust in this chair? But what the Bible says is that if you have faith in something, if you have trust in something, what's going to come out of that is actions. And James 2, it starts to kind of expound on this. And James 2 says that some people say, I can have faith and no works. And other people say, I can have works and no faith. And what James says is, it's a both and. That if you have a true, genuine, saving faith, what's going to come out of that is works. What's going to come out of that is action. What's going to come out of that is demonstrating your trust in God. And what James kind of starts to close out that, that little passage, and he says that if you're a person who says, I can have all the faith in the world, but I don't have to demonstrate that faith, he says you're, you're edging very closely onto an intellectual faith more than a saving faith. And he says an intellectual faith is what the demons have. He says, you believe in God, so do the demons. So he says, a genuine faith doesn't just say, I believe in God. A genuine faith overflows into action in that. Now, what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying that you're saved by works. The Bible very clearly says that um, we're saved by grace through faith. So I'm not saying you've got to do a bunch of things in order to be saved. Thank God I don't have to do a bunch of things in order to be saved because I'd be doomed to hell today. Amen? Anyone with me? Okay, good. What the Bible says is that we're saved by grace through faith, but it also says if you have a genuine faith, that's going to overflow into the actions that you take. And so I'm not trying to um, uh, sow any doubt into any people here today, but the Bible says if you're a person who you spent your whole life saying, I believe in God, yet your life has no resemblance of God, then the Bible says you might want to question that you might want to be a little bit worried 
Again, not trying to sow any doubt into people. I'm just trying to present what the Bible's saying. So that's the first characteristic we see today is that faith leads to action in the same way that Abraham led to action, getting up the next morning ready to do this. We should also lead to action when God calls us to do something. That's first characteristic. Second characteristic of faith, let's, let's move into it. As we do that, I want to pose to you the question is, um, how does one's faith, talk about Abraham, how does one's faith become that strong? Like, again, we already, we all agreed. I don't know if we were called to sacrifice our son today. I don't know if any of us would do it. Um, but how does Abraham's faith get that strong where, where he moves quickly in that? And what I want to bring up to you is that, is that whenever we're looking at these historical accounts, it's really easy to remove all the context, surrounding context from it, and just read it in isolation. Uh, so let's, let's broaden out the context for Abraham here. So Abraham in chapter 12 was called by God to start the nation of Israel. He was 75 at that point when he was called. Now there's debate on chapter 22 where we're at today on how old Abraham was, but most generally agree that he was roughly around 125. So let's just say for sake of argument, he was 125 at this point. So that means that in those uh, 10 chapters, 50 years have passed where Abraham had been following God. And in those 50 years, that means that he wasn't a spiritual infant or baby. He was actually more of a spiritual giant. Now, the question is, how did he become a spiritual giant? He did so because in those 50 years, he allowed God to move and work in his life. Like all throughout those 10 chapters, there's times where God is saying, hey, go over here. And Abraham's like, where? And he's like, you'll figure it out as we go, right? He's calling him out into the unknown and pulling Abraham with him. And through all those things, his faith is being strengthened and he's seeing God's faithfulness come through and his faith is being strengthened more. And he's put into struggle and adversity. And through that struggle and adversity, his faith is being strengthened anymore. It gets to the point that he has a mature, steadfast faith because of all that he's gone through. Now, that doesn't mean that Abraham didn't have problems. Abraham made a lot of mistakes. We can list them out. Primarily, he gave his wife and called his wife his sister and gave him over to the, uh, to the king to save his own skin. Don't do that. It's a bad thing. So Abraham made mistakes, but more importantly, through all those mistakes, through all the callings of God, through all the trials, through all the adversity, he stuck by God and allowed God to move in his life. And that leads us to our second characteristic, is that uh, faith is strengthened by trial. Faith is strengthened by trial. In high school, I was always annoyed by two-a-days. Um, like, how many of you played football in high school? Yeah. So, uh, if you don't know what two-a-days are, uh, whenever August comes around, a few weeks before school, they'll call all the football teams in and they'll do like four hours of practice in the morning, send you home for lunch, and then you'll come back and do four more hours of practice later that night. It very much annoyed me because uh, whenever, we, whenever we played and started the two-a-days, they would push us so hard, like to our breaking point. Like everyone around us was all gasping for air on the ground. Some of us were throwing up. Uh, in fact, uh, the first practice that I went to, I practiced that morning with football. And then immediately after that practice, I had to go over here to the band rehearsal. 
And I remember I left the practice and walking across the field to the band rehearsal, I threw up and then just kept going. <laughs> and so they just push you and push you to your breaking point. Now, here's the interesting thing is that day one, we're broke, like we're done, right? By day 10, all of a sudden, it's not so bad anymore. Like what broke us on day one isn't so bad on day 10. Why is that? It's because through all of that adversity, through all of those trials, we're being strengthened and we're being molded into something. And the same is true with our faith. That our faith through our adversity is being strengthened and molded. James chapter 1 verse 2 says this. It says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, something I want to point out to you here. So this passage says that when you uh, experience various testing and trials, uh, um, that is doing something in your life. It's maturing your faith. It's strengthening your faith so that you may be complete and lacking nothing. Now, here's the interesting part of it. What does it say at the very beginning? It says, consider it a great joy. I've read this passage a dozen times, two dozen, three dozen times in my life, and for some reason, I've always skipped over those first five words. How many of you take joy in your trials? How many of you, when you're struggling, when you're going through a hard time, you just take joy in it? I don't know. I don't know if I do either. It's telling us to take joy in it. Now, what, is the Bible calling us to be sadistic? To, to just be um, happy that we're like going through so much pain in awful times. I don't think that's what the Bible's calling us to do. What I think the Bible is saying here is that in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the awfulness that is going on in your life, there should be an optimism that goes over that, right? So you may have walked in today and you're having the worst week or the worst month of your life. And I'm not discrediting that. You may have be having an awful time. But what the Bible's saying, what God is saying, is that over the top of that should come an optimism out of that that says, hey, I might be going through the worst time of my life, but God is doing something through it. I may be experiencing extreme struggle right now. Like, like I might, my marriage might be falling apart. My kids, I don't know what I'm doing with them. My finances, I can't pay my bills. I'm struggling with my faith. All these things, you may be going through a hard time, and what God is saying is that those are terrible things, but allow them to do something in your life. Allow them to have a redemptive quality in your life. Allow them to strengthen your faith in the same way that day one, I was broke by that practice. Day 10, I could handle it. God is saying, if you allow the struggles in your life, the trials in your life to work in you and to mold in you, then what seemed like it was difficult at age 20 may seem like nothing at age 70 because you've allowed those things to work in your life and to mold you and to strengthen you. And that's what Abraham did. Why was Abraham able to step out on faith? It's because for 50 years, he's allowed those um, issues and those events in his life to strengthen his faith to, to the point where when God says, hey, go take uh, your son and go sacrifice him, he's like, I trust you, God. I know that you're faithful. I know that you're good because I've seen it work in my life over and over and over again.
So those are the first two characteristics of faith. One, faith leads to action. Two, faith is strengthened by trial. And the third one that we're going to look at is that faith leans on the provision of God. Faith leans on the provision of God. Now, as we uh, talk about this passage, a question that might pop up in your mind, because we know that Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac and that God provides a, a sacrifice, a question that may pop up in your mind is, was Abraham really going to sacrifice Isaac? Was he really prepared to do that? And I'm going to present a paradox to you here. I'm going to say on one hand, Abraham was fully willing and ready to sacrifice Isaac. Yet on the other hand, Abraham fully knew that God would provide for it. How do those things hang in tandem with each other? Well, let's talk about it. So Genesis uh, chapter 22, verse 4, we're going to pick up right there. It says, On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Y'all catch that? It says, then we'll come back to you. I don't know if, uh, how many times you've sacrificed someone, but they usually don't come back with you um, after you sacrifice them. Uh, am I incriminating myself if I say that? I probably shouldn't say that. Okay. Abraham knew that both of them were going to be returning. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Which, by the way, is an uncomfortable question, right? <laughs> like, I wonder how long it took them to get up the mountain before Isaac started to realize, Oh no, I'm the sacrifice. Uh, which, by the way, have you ever thought about the, uh, the conversation that happened coming down from the mountain? Where Isaac is like, you had a knife. Wait, anyway, sorry. <laughs> All right, where are we at? Verse 7. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, my father. And he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. So what was the, Abraham's response? His response was, God will provide the lamb. And so it looks like Abraham's on his way to sacrifice his son, but from what it sounds like, Abraham knows full well he's not going to sacrifice his son. But remember I mentioned earlier, I said there's a paradox. Abraham fully knew that God would provide, yet at the same time, Abraham was fully ready to sacrifice his son. How do those two hang in tandem with these verses? Well, in Hebrews 11, it gives us insight into this passage. Hebrews 11:19. if you want to go look it up later, is Abraham, it talks, it says, it talks about this very situation. And Abraham, it says that Abraham reasoned that if he did have to sacrifice his son, that God would bring him back from the dead. Which leads us to this beautiful like paradox statement of Abraham fully knew that God was going to provide a sacrifice and at the same time knew even if he didn't, he would provide. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is the um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where they're about to be thrown into the fire. And they say, hey, we're going to throw you into the fire. And they respond saying, our, our God will save us from this. 
but even if he doesn't, glory be to God. And so it's this thing of, you know God's going to provide for you, but even if he doesn't provide, he's going to provide for you. The paradox that happens there. And that's the same way we got to look about in our own life. When we're dealing with the issues in our life, your car may not start, your kids are a muck, your marriage is on the brink of divorce, your, uh, uh, your house is about to be foreclosed on. You live uh, under, or sorry, you live leaning on the provision of God, saying God will provide. And even if he doesn't, he will provide. And that's how Abraham operated here. And so Abraham and Isaac went up the mountain and they set up the altar and, and Isaac was put on the altar and Abraham pulled back the knife to sacrifice him and God stopped him and said, don't sacrifice your son. There's a ram over there caught in the thicket. Take that ram and sacrifice it. And then the coolest thing happens. We're going to pick up right there. Uh, verse 13 of the passage. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. So did y'all catch that last part there? I found it interesting that Abraham named the mountain the Lord will provide and not the Lord has provided. I find it interesting that they say it will be provided on the Lord's mountain, not it has been provided on the Lord's mountain. See, here's, here's where we're going to tie it all back in, is that while this passage is going on in this very context, what it's actually doing is it's foreshadowing 2,000 years later to what's going to happen. It's foreshadowing when Jesus comes and how he's going to be the sacrifice for us. That's why the, the mountain is the Lord will provide is this is all a glimpse of what's to come in the future. And it's beautiful because Abraham is the start of the nation of Israel. And Isaac was the offspring out of which the lineage of Jesus would come. Right? And so from the very get-go of the nation of Israel, God says, hey, I'm going to use this example. I'm going to use this story right here, this example, to foretell what I'm even doing through the nation of Israel for the rest of the world that we don't have to be sacrificed ourselves because God himself will sacrifice himself. Have you all ever noticed all the correlations in this passage? So in this passage, God calls on Abraham to sacrifice his only son whom he loves. Sounds an awful lot like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for us. In this passage, Isaac is burdened with carrying the wood upon which he would be sacrificed. We see later when Jesus is going to his death, he's carrying his own cross up the mountain upon which he'll be sacrificed. We see in this passage that um, Isaac was going to be offered as a burnt offering. Do you know what a burnt offering is for? It's for the atonement, and re atonement of our sin and restoration with God. Jesus, 2,000 years later, would hang on a cross as the ultimate sacrifice for the atonement of our sin and restoration with God. The whole point of this passage is to point us forward to what God is doing through the nation of Israel, which I find amazing. Again, this has happened 2,000 years before Jesus even entered the scene, and they're depicting exactly what Jesus is going to do for us. And so Abraham leaned on the provision of God. We need to lean on the provision of God. What's the provision of God? Jesus. 
And so when I say that we place our faith in God, what I'm saying is we're placing our faith, our trust in Jesus, that he has the ability to save us, to redeem us, and to restore us through the work on the cross if we give our lives to him. And so we're calling on you today. Give your life to Jesus. He is trustworthy. He is good. He can save you. Let me pray that we do that. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, that all the way back at the beginning of Israel, you had a plan, and that you've been working that plan to the point of the death on the cross by your son. And so, Lord, I just pray today, God, that we would see this passage and not see a horrific God calling on people to sacrifice their children, but we would see a loving God who's willing to sacrifice himself for us. That we're the ones that's supposed to be placed on that altar to pay for our sin, but Jesus is the one placed there. We're the ones that's supposed to pay our debt, yet Jesus pays our debt. We're the ones that are supposed to be doomed to hell, yet Jesus pays that price. And through his resurrection, we are offered new life. And so God, I just pray, whether people have been saved for 40 years or they don't even know who you are, God, that they would place their faith in you, that they would strengthen their faith in you and that they would trust you with their lives, knowing that you have the ability to save them, provide for them and care for them and lead them to life. We're gonna move into a time of invitation. Really, this time is just for you to respond and however God is calling you. You may be that person that you say, yes, I'm the one that is going through the most awful time in my life right now. And you may just wanna pray where you are and you may wanna come up to the altar of prayer and maybe wants to pray with you to help you find that optimism in it, that God is working in you, that God is doing something in you that God is restoring you and strengthening you through it. You may be a person that says, I've never placed my faith in Jesus before. I've never trusted Jesus. And I would love to trust him for the forgiveness of my sins and for the giving of new life. I'll just come down. We'd love to walk you through that.